Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022. You're watching Tisky Sour. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm feeling good. Happy New Year, Michael. Thank you very much. It might be a new year, but we're talking about some familiar topics. COVID-19 and Prince Andrew. Uh, so two, two topics we've been talking about for a couple of years, but some very important developments on both counts. In the face of the Omicron variant, no national leader in the UK chose to limit people's activities over Christmas. However, immediately afterwards, the four nations took very different paths. In Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, restrictions were implemented before New Year's Eve, which saw limits on indoor gatherings and the closing of nightclubs. England, however, was allowed to party as usual and still is. It was a gamble. That's because Omicron is still surging across the four nations. Today, so this is the latest statistics, there were 157,000 new COVID cases reported across the UK. It's worth noting this doesn't include Wales and Northern Ireland at this moment in time because of the bank holidays, data is, is coming through in a, a slightly different way than it usually does. This is feeding into a dramatic increase in hospital admissions. They've reached almost 2,000 per day. And deaths are also rising, though by not quite as much, and they're still much lower than they were during prior waves. A spike in cases and hospitalizations, however, has not led Boris Johnson to favour changing course. He spoke to TV crews earlier today. I think the way forward for I think the way forward for the country as a whole is to continue with the path that we're on. Uh, we'll keep everything under review. Of course, we keep all measures under review. But the the mixture of of, of things that we're doing at the moment is, I think, the right one. So number one, continue with with Plan B. Make sure that people take it seriously, uh, do what we can to stop the, the spread, use the plan B measures, work from home if you can, wear a mask on public transport, uh, be sensible about, uh, take a test before going out to meet people you don't normally meet, uh, think about the, the, the requirements under plan B, but also get the, the booster. And I think that's the difference between the UK and so much of the rest of, of Europe and, and perhaps the rest of the world, uh, we have a very, very high level of vaccination. Boris Johnson is right. The UK has done well on boosters. We do have a high level of vaccination. 50% of the UK population have now had their third jab. That compares to rates of between 30 and 40% in Germany, Italy and France. That's that's important, that's significant. He's also right that Omicron cases seem to be generally milder than for previous variants. The Times have a write-up of the first study from scientists in South Africa, which suggests that Omicron is, is less likely to lead to deaths or serious illness. So they report that researchers followed COVID-19 patients admitted to a large hospital in Tuane in the Hauteng province where the variant first took hold, that's the Omicron variant of course, they found that 4.5% of patients admitted to hospital died during the Omicron wave compared with 21.3% in a period before the strain arrived. The study also found that patients spent an average of four days in hospital during the Omicron wave compared with 8.8 .8 days before the variant took hold. The number needing intensive care was also far lower at 1% rather than 3%. About 45% of recent COVID-19 patients were treated with oxygen compared with 99.5% in the first wave. 
There are some some caveats. The patients were younger than in previous waves. Potentially, if it reaches older people in in the UK, it could be more of a problem. But it does appear to confirm that South African doctors were correct when they said Omicron was relatively mild compared to previous strains. There are already signs of this in data from the UK as well. This graph shows the number of people currently on mechanical ventilation in UK hospitals. On the 29th of December, so this data is a bit more lagged, despite very high admissions across the UK, only 868 patients were undergoing mechanical ventilation in UK hospitals. That's lower than a month ago and a fraction of the 4,000 people on ventilation in last January's peak. So this is good news. However, for the bad news, of course, none of this means hospitals are in the clear Even if less patients end up in critical care, 2,000 admissions a day fills an awful lot of beds. And this coincides with unprecedented absences. Data from the Financial Times shows that absences in, in, in London hospitals are as high as they have been since the peak last winter. And in places such as Great Ormond Street and Homerton, way, way higher. They're having an unprecedented level of absences due to COVID-19. Um, Ash, it is all an incredibly complex picture. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's too early to say whether or not leaving nightclubs open over New Year will be something that Boris Johnson comes to regret or not. What's your initial sense looking at what we know now? Reasons for cautious optimism turned out to play out okay. When you compare where we are Now, compared to this time last year, where you had not only spiraling case rates, but an absolute tidal wave of hospitalizations and deaths, I think it's undeniable that we are in a better place than we were, where we were essentially forced into a lockdown because of government inaction on taking a much earlier circuit breaker. So in some ways, this early stage, Boris Johnson has been vindicated. Where there are problems, as always with this government, are the persistent failures to build up institutional capacity to deal with some of the consequences of policy decision-making. So as soon as we knew that there wasn't going to be a a cancellation of social mixing over Christmas, which I personally think was the right thing to do, as soon as we knew that there wasn't going to be restrictions on public indoor gatherings, which again, I think so far perhaps has shown to be the right decision, there should have been intense measures to build up capacity within the NHS. Again, this is something which should have been done, uh, you know, much earlier in the pandemic when we had that really beautiful summer of 2020 where case rates were mercifully low. That should have been a time where the government was using that breathing space to build up capacity for the months and years ahead. It has so far failed to do that at every step along the way. And I think that's because of this constant tension within the cabinet about how much money is too much money uh, to be spent on protecting the lives of your citizens. Um, there is a you know fiscal hawk, both as a uh, minister uh, of health and also as chancellor of the exchequer. And those two things mean that you don't have, I think, an honest conversation going on within the government about what's needed to build up staffing capacity, to build up uh, beds capacity, to do the sort of investment in education and classroom spaces that I know we're about to talk about, which will help cut down transmission rates and maintain people's ability to keep in-person teaching. Because here's the thing with Omicron, is even if it is milder, and, and mercifully it does seem to be milder, you have a highly transmissible variant, which means that people are going to have to take time off work. And unless you have a really wild policy decision, which don't have self-isolation for Omicron at all, which would be 
highly reckless, particularly within the NHS, where you do have workers coming into contact with people who are clinically extremely vulnerable, indeed elderly, you are going to have to deal with quite a lot of staff absences. The fact there was no real plan put in place for that, I think, is is shocking and, and speaks volumes of a government whose cardinal sin is underpreparedness and trying to do public health policy uh, with the mindset of a cheapskate, quite frankly. And it's a 10-year thing as well, right? Because it's, it's not, if you say, oh, we won't have restrictions, but we will double the capacity of the NHS, obviously you can't do that in, in a couple of weeks. This is, what we're seeing now is a result of 10 years of austerity and the result of, of running all of our public services to the absolute brink, seeing any extra capacity as as a waste and then trying to undergo efficiency savings. We say, oh, well, if we've got 10% of beds free um, over the autumn, why don't we get rid of those? And then when winter comes around, this is before COVID-19, when winter comes around, you've got hospitals putting out emergency warnings because they can't give proper treatment. This stuff all predated the pandemic. And what's quite interesting at this point, I think, is, I think this is sort of unique to this phase, I suppose, is people like Chris Hopson, he's CEO of NHS Providers. We often show you his tweets, definitely worth following. He is sort of saying, look, this time around, the the COVID-19 picture isn't simple. Yes, admissions are increasing, but they are they're less severe than they have been in previous waves. It's not actually the case that critical beds are right now um, filling up to capacity. The bigger problem is just that if you have staff absences, if you have people coming into hospital with COVID, even if they're not getting that sick, obviously you have to be quite sick to go into hospital in the first place. We shouldn't underplay that. But even if for relative to any inpatient in hospital, you're not the most sick person in the building, if you're taking up a bed, that is still a real strain on capacity. And if they've been stripped to the bone for 10 years, you're going to get problems. So it, it's not really at this point, I think about restrictions versus not restrictions. It's what are we going to learn for the long term in terms of running hospitals like this? Um, a couple of comments. Kieran Buckley with a fiver. We have handled this pandemic so badly. Lord knows how bad we will screw up the handling of the next pandemic. We don't seem to have learned many lessons in the summer of 2020. So when people were, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an expert, I'm not an epidemiologist, but because I host this show, sometimes people say, well, what do you think is going to happen this winter? Do you think it's going to be bad? And I was like, well, I think it's going to be bad. COVID's not going to go away. But I suppose the one thing I can't imagine happening is the government making exactly the same mistake they made the first time around, which was crossing their fingers and, and hoping for the best. They made exactly the same mistake and more people died. The only surprise I've had throughout this pandemic is how little the government have learned from their mistakes. And obviously, I, I didn't expect them to learn from austerity because the people they were dying as a result of those policies were a particular section of society which the Conservatives can ignore. My initial assumption when it came to COVID-19 is because it is so general in who it affects, it, it would be madness for, for a government to keep making the same mistakes, but they've managed it. We're going to go back to a little bit more data and particularly to London, which is the crystal ball when it comes to the Omicron pandemic. That's because it's 10 days ahead of the rest of the country in terms of its spread. It hit London first. And looking at London, we know more now than when we last spoke to you. Admissions are very high, worryingly high, in fact, but the number of patients on mechanical ventilation, again, remains low. As I say, this is important because we should expect that Throughout the rest of the country, it will also be low in 10 days because London is 10 days ahead. On the 2nd of January, there were 203 people needing mechanical ventilation in London. That's only 20 more people than a month earlier, and it compares to 1,220 at the January peak. It is good news, and it would be especially reassuring if we could be confident cases in London had peaked. On that front, the picture is, is less reassuring. 
So as you can see here, there was a decline in the seven-day average of new cases in London just before Christmas. That led to hopes that the first city hit by Omicron was already past its peak. We discussed those hopes on the, the last show before we left for the holidays. However, then 32,000 people who took a test on the 29th of December tested positive. That's the highest figure ever recorded in the capital. And there are possible reasons to think it could get worse. Any infections transmitted in New Year's celebrations will be yet to feed into these statistics. And tomorrow sees the reopening of schools. The government does seem worried about outbreaks in schools. That's particularly because they're worried the staffing levels will decline and they'll have to close. The government, to that effect, yesterday announced the reintroduction of masks in secondary schools, not in primary schools, but they will, for the first time, be worn in classrooms. Beforehand, it was only in communal areas. The Department of Education are also sending out 7,000 air purifying units. This was something bragged about by the Department for Education on Twitter. They, can, they even made a graphic for it. So proud of this announcement, this commitment they were making. However, Mary Boosted, who is Joint General Secretary of the National Education Union, is not impressed. She was asked on Sky whether 7,000 units were enough. No, it's not enough. The 7,000 air that sounds like a lot, doesn't it, 7,000? But actually, when you think, we calculate that there are 300,000 classrooms uh, in England, then 7,000 is just gesture politics. It's a, and when you look at the carbon dioxide levels that are needed to even apply one of those air purifiers, um, they are, you know, they're, they're really very, very high. So this is, this is not a, a, a good reaction. We know in other European countries, uh, ventilation units have been supplied to every classroom where there's poor ventilation. And the government's had you know, this is the third round, we're into the third wave, the third year of this um, uh, virus. And it's had enough time to uh, learn what it needs to do. We now know that it's largely transmitted through airborne transmission. So we should be having a guarantee of clean air in every classroom. And 7,000 monitors won't do that. 300,000 classrooms, 7,000 air purifying units. You can't have an air purifying unit per school. <laughs> there's more than 7,000 schools, by the way. I think there's about 25,000 schools in Britain. They haven't even given each school an air purifier, let alone each classroom an air purifier. And that's what you would need to prevent the transmission of, of COVID-19 in classrooms. And, and why I think this is so, so outrageous is because, as we've discussed so many times on this show, when it comes to schools and pandemics, there are genuine difficult decisions to be made. There, there are good faith disagreements which can be had about the benefits of closing schools, schooling from home, or sort of in other ways restricting education as usual. And basically the, the cost of both are huge. The cost of closing schools is huge. The cost of keeping them open in a pandemic, whatever mitigations you take, is probably going to be quite big. So you've got a real big policy dilemma there. But there are other issues on which everyone should be able to agree, which is that we want to do everything we can to keep kids in school, we should also do everything we can to keep them, their families and teachers safe. And that means every classroom at, at minimum should have an air purifying unit. It's, it, it just doesn't seem like it should be a difficult decision to make. And here you have the Department of Education, presumably paying some graphic designer to make a Twitter video that brags that they've got 7,000 air purifying units to be shared among 300,000 classrooms. Ash, it, it beggars belief, doesn't it? 
Absolutely beggar's belief. But again, I think this speaks to the sort of false economy which dominates the thinking of the cabinet. Because one of the reasons why he had to introduce furlough is because infection rates got so high that schools could not be kept open, both from a perspective of public safety, but also because if you let infection rates get to a certain high level, they're just impossible to run. You don't have the staffing capacity. And of course, when you don't have kids in schools, and when somebody, some adult somewhere has to, you know, look after all of these little blighters, well, then that's when parents' ability to work becomes severely impaired. So it wasn't just about uh, people un being unable to go into the office. It was also just that without schools being able to function in person, there were huge demands on, on workers' time, which meant that you had to have a hugely expensive, uh, worthwhile, completely the right thing to do, but obviously a hugely expensive rollout. So again, it's just a way of thinking that dominates this government, which is all about saving a penny a day and ending up having to spend £100 tomorrow. Um, of course, mitigation is expensive. But if you want us to do the thing which, you know, all of these libertarian headbangers are telling us we have to do, which is learn to live with the virus, well, that's exactly what learning to live with the virus means. If we're not able to pursue a zero COVID policy, and the reason why we're not able to do that is because infection rates are simply too high, we're too far away from zero COVID to be able to suppress to that extent, well, then you are going to have things like expensive mitigation measures. You are going to need things like really generous sick pay so that people are able to take the time off and not infect their fellow workers. You're also going to need investment to help children bridge the digital divide if they are having to uh, be taught at home, either because they're self-isolating or for you know any other reason their school their schools are able to function because of uh, infection rates. That's what learning to live the virus is, rather than this persistent state of denial that the treasury will have to spend any money whatsoever. So I think it's 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 a case of of not just lions led by donkeys. Of course, this government are idiots, right? They don't have to be smart because they have a almost entirely supine media that they can play to. But I think it's an embodiment of I think James Butler wrote about this once very well in the LRB, which is the thinking in the Treasury is that spending money like eating people is always wrong, and so there's an un there's an inability. That comprehend that you might have to invest in these expensive mitigation measures now in order to save yourself costs down the line. A super important point. And I think the learning to live with the virus thing as well, because I don't think it's just said by headbangers, to be fair, because I mean, I think we are going to live with it. And so we're going to have to learn to do that. But you're right. I mean, it often does come from those quarters. And it did definitely come from those quarters in, in 2020 before we had vaccines when they were just saying, let everyone get it and hope for the best. But I mean, you are absolutely right. And the thing I think with when it comes to ventilation and sick pay and things like this, which is how we and hospital capacity, which is kind of how we sh I think personally, some people disagree is how, how we should be talking about COVID-19, which is seeing it kind of as one of many other diseases and threats we face. And the great thing about ventilation in schools, the great thing about proper sick pay, the great thing about increased hospital capacity, the great thing about, say, smaller classrooms, for example, is that whatever illnesses are around, that's going to help. And also it's going to help our, our, our quality of life as well, because if you have ventilations in classrooms, that's not just going to help stop the transmission of COVID-19, it's also going to help stop the transmission of flu. And schools are one place where, where people catch flu and maybe give it to their grandparents who get severely sick. And even if you're a working agent, it's not nice to get flu. So the cleaner we make all of our air, it just seems like a win-win a to me. Like, I, I don't know if it's just because not, like there's no Tory politician whose mates all run the air purifying company. I kind of wish they did. Because even if corruption got us there, I would prefer us to have bunged a few billion pounds to an air purifying factory, wherever the profits ended up going.
Let's go to some comments. Oliver Kant with a fiber. What are the chances of Omicron developing into something more deadly if left unchecked, even if it is currently mild? Very good question. What I would say to that is, on one level, it's above my pay grade. I'm, I'm not a virologist, so I'm not going to be able to give you a definitive answer to that question. But my sense here is that there is no reason to be particularly confident that a new, more dangerous variant won't emerge. I don't think there's anything sort of about the biology of viruses that makes that impossible. There are some people who suggest that they tend to get milder as they evolve. That's massively disputed. I don't feel qualified to sort of intervene in that debate. What I would say and what I'm more confident about is that as we get further and further into living with this disease, technology will improve, basically. So if you have antivirals, which are improving, if you have vaccines, which are constantly improving, then even if the virus gets a bit more dangerous, then hopefully we will be in a position to make it less dangerous via medical science, essentially. Obviously, if if a, a new variant of COVID-19 comes along or a completely different pandemic, we'll be in a much better situation to deal with it if we do all the things we've just been talking about. Ventilation in public places, more capacity in hospitals, and actually I'd say lots of sort of primary investment by governments into antivirals and into next generation vaccines so that we don't leave it all to Pfizer and, and Moderna. Between Christmas and New Year, Ghislaine Maxwell was found guilty on five charges connected to sex trafficking, including sex trafficking of a minor. She faces up to 65 years in prison. Maxwell was, of course, a close confidant of the convicted paedophile Jeffrey Epstein, who died in 2019 in a New York prison. The jury's verdict on Maxwell was damning, and the story made waves across the US and, and across the world. The response of the British press, though, was pretty odd. In the immediate wake of Maxwell's conviction, the BBC invited Alan Dershowitz for comment. Dershowitz was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. He is also, along with Prince Andrew, one of the high-profile men accused by Virginia Giuffray of sexual assault. However, none of this was mentioned by the BBC when introducing Dershowitz. He was simply introduced as a constitutional lawyer. This is what he said. Well, I think the most important thing, particularly for British workers, is that the um government uh, was very careful who it used as witnesses. It did not use as a witness the woman who accused Prince Andrew, accused me, accused many other people, because the government didn't believe she was telling the truth. In fact, she, Virginia Gouffre, was mentioned in the trial as somebody who brought young people to Epstein for him to abuse. And so this case does nothing at all to strengthen in any way the case against Prince Andrew, indeed, it weakens the case against Prince Andrew considerably because the government was very selective in who it used. It used only witnesses who they believed were credible, credible, and they deliberately didn't use the main witness, the, the woman who started the whole investigation, uh, Virginia Gouffre, because ultimately they didn't believe she was telling the truth. They didn't believe that a jury would believe her, and they were right in doing so. So it was very smart on the part of the government. So to get this straight, after a rich and powerful person was convicted of sex trafficking minors, the BBC's first port of call is to invite one of their confidants on to discuss aspersions about another alleged victim. And, and no, Alan Dershowitz, Ghislaine Maxwell being convicted of sex crimes does not vindicate her lifelong friend, Prince Andrew, nor you. So bizarre. 
Dershowitz. Um, let's look at some more of that interview. He was not challenged on, on any of this, even when he went on to say that Jeffrey herself should now face trial. And the other question is, who else will be charged? Because the testimony introduced evidence that other people were guilty and involved. Again, uh, Virginia Gouffray, she was alleged by the same women who the jury believed to have brought them to Jeffrey Epstein, knowing that they were underage, uh, getting undressed, having sex with Epstein in front of them when they were underage in order to encourage them also to have sex with Epstein. So I think the next question is, when will Virginia Gouffray be indicted and charged rather than her accusing people like Prince Andrew and me and uh, Ayud Barak and George Mitchell and the dozens of other people who she's accused. So the next question is, who else will be charged for facilitating uh, Jeffrey Epstein's um, misconduct? So the big takeaway, the big takeaway from the BBC's post-trial interview with a legal expert is that the real villain in the successful trial of Ghislaine Maxwell is one of her alleged victims. And anyone else that this alleged victim has accused is therefore innocent. The decision to platform Alan Dershowitz was widely condemned on social media. And the next day, the BBC issued this statement. Last night's interview with Alan Dershowitz after the Ghislaine Maxwell verdict did not meet the BBC's editorial standards, as Mr Dershowitz was not a suitable person to interview as an impartial analyst, and we did not make the relevant background clear to our audience. We will look into how this happened. So welcome apology, although it's worth noting that beyond describing Dershowitz as not a suitable person to interview, the BBC still failed to state that he stands accused of multiple counts of sexual assault or sexual abuse by Virginia Giffray. And there was no pushback about all of the aspersions that he cast about that alleged victim. That's what I think was almost as shocking as inviting him on in the first place. The bizarre reporting of this case doesn't end there, though. So a day after being forced to apologise for platforming Dershowitz, the BBC inexplicably invited Ian Maxwell, Ghislaine Maxwell's brother, onto Radio 4's Today programme. They did that. He went on to defend a convicted sex offender. You'll hear first the interview at Michelle Hussein recounting some of the witness statements given in court. Let's go back to what was actually said in the trial and the accounts that the jury believed, the accounts that corroborated one after another from these four women, one of them saying that your sister had given her a topless massage when she was 16, another one saying that your sister told her she had a great body for Epstein and his friends before touching her breasts, um, uh, another one saying that your sister was the one who showed her how Jeffrey Epstein liked to be massaged. Are you saying to us that all of these women are lying? No, I'm not saying that they are lying. You know, it may well be that they were victims of Jeffrey Epstein, but I do not accept that they were victims of Ghislaine. And that's my position. And that's also her position. Which would have to mean that they were lying when they said that she was the one who introduced them to Epstein, that she was part of the procurement of them for Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, your sister was an integral part of Jeffrey Epstein's life, wasn't she? She was running his home. She was at his side. We saw all the photographs during the trial of yeah. all the time they spent together, all the places they went together, how intertwined their lives were. If what you're saying is correct, it would mean that she was at his side and had no idea what was going on. That's the impression that the prosecution wanted to give you. I think there was something like 100 photographs out of 37,000 
None of them were dated. Most of those look to me from about 1992, 93. It's designed to paint a picture. And of course, the prosecution didn't put into evidence the prior interviews that they had with these accusers prior to trial, which showed a completely different case. Memory is faulty. So in my view, the trial that has occurred was not a fair trial from Gillen's perspective. And that is why she's going to appeal, and I think she'll be successful. What the hell is going on at the BBC? Ian Maxwell, he's entitled to his opinion, whatever, but it is not normal, two days after the conviction of a sex offender, to invite the guilty party's family onto a primetime slot, this was a Today programme, Radio 4's most significant show, to suggest the jury got it wrong, and then to cast aspersions about the memory, motives, and reliability of the victims. And I say victims now, not alleged victims, because the facts of this case have now been decided by a jury in court. This is completely out of the ordinary. And so anyone from the BBC who is telling you that this is normal media coverage and the mistake in getting Alan Dershowitz on was simply a kind of procedural snafu. The wrong overworked producer dialed the wrong phone number or something is completely for the birds. The key question is, what is it that makes our media so vulnerable to elite manipulation? Because this is exactly what's going on here is Alan Dershowitz in Maxwell being given these kind of platforms is a form of elite manipulation of public opinion. It is a very naked attempt to smear and besmirch the reputations of Jeffrey Epstein's accusers and indeed Alan Dershowitz's accuser and Prince Andrew's accuser. It is an attempt to uh, get the public to cast doubt on the validity and the integrity of the judgment. And neither of those things would be possible. That access to platform would not be possible unless these two men were connected to the kind of elitist establishment that the BBC also finds itself a part of. One of the things that's very often said when you try and understand things like this by defenders of the establishment is that cock-up is always more likely than conspiracy, to which I tend to reply, well, why not both? It is the fact that the media is dominated by a kind of journalistic logic and moralistic framework which is completely devoid of integrity that makes it so vulnerable to this kind of manipulation. Because you have, from producers to presenters, a sort of shared buy into the logic of, well, if I can get someone close to the story, that means I've done a good job. I've got the scoop. I've got the access. And that's all that matters. What kind of questions you put to them, or indeed whether or not they should be questioned in this setting at all, as opposed to say, I don't know, a court of law. Um, those things are completely secondary, if not just ignored entirely. And I do think that sometimes there are elements of, of active conspiracy, whether that is a kind of benign conspiracy of, well, oh, you know, these seem like reasonable chaps. So, you know, we should get them on to say their piece, which is a luxury which would never be afforded to, say, uh, people accused as part of Rotherham grooming gangs or indeed the siblings of those people. And indeed, perhaps, you know, considering the BBC's history with regards to Jimmy Savile, I don't know who's working there. I don't know if they've got any experience of turning a blind eye or indeed 
some kind of active participation in this kind of behavior. But what this means is that regardless of whether it's that kind of lazy elite solidarity or something more sinister or what the precise balance is between cock-up or conspiracy is that the media is simply not able defend or advance basic journalistic integrity or be fair to these women who have already been cross-examined, who've already had their private lives and every detail of their personalities and sex lives torn apart, ripped apart for public consumption. And I think that one of the things which is most shameful about this case is even though we are all faced with the same set of facts, which tell us that something has gone grotesquely awry, that these young women, these girls, these, you know, in some cases, children were left so unprotected to predators and that they weren't believed and that there was the active complicity of the state in giving preferential deals to Jeffrey Epstein, essentially to allow their abuse to continue. That in addition to all that, you now have a media industrial complex, which is traipsing after abuse apologists simply because they think it makes a better story. No, actually the story people want is the one which has got some integrity, some fairness, and something which has got the facts fairly represented in it, which is not what you get from a Dershowitz or a Ian Maxwell interview. It's absolutely shameful, Michael. And, and I know this shouldn't shock me anymore, but it did. I'm not trying to say this is what you, you said there, but there was a, a sense, and one way this has been reported is, oh, they invited them on because they thought it would make good TV to have someone who was close to Glenn Maxwell to make the defence or good radio or whatever. But it would actually be not just on an integrity level, but also on a sort of an engaging listen, if they ask the more interesting questions here, which is, as you say, how did Jeffrey Epstein get away for this for so long? How did he get 18 months in a prison where he was allowed to leave every day after he was originally found guilty of sex crimes? How did Jeffrey Epstein move in all of these incredibly powerful circles for so long? Was his abuse connected to his access? Or was it incidental to it? How did he get so rich, considering we don't really have any explanation of that? Were there connections to aspects of the Secret Service. These are all incredibly interesting questions that would make really good radio and really good TV. But instead, the BBC won't touch any of those things because they think, oh, that's a little bit controversial. That might come around and, and bite us in the arse. That might piss off some powerful people. Instead, they invite the brother of someone who's just been convicted of sex trafficking, sex trafficking minors, and they invite the previous lawyer of the guy who died. Under what circumstances did he die? Another very interesting question to be asking. I'd listened to that radio show, but instead we listened to his lawyer who, completely unprovoked, a jury has found this woman guilty. Ghislaine Maxwell, they have found this woman guilty, and all he thinks is relevant is to go on TV and say, well, the real story here, the real story here is that one of the accusers... In fact, the accuser that accused me should not be believed. That's what they've decided was, was TV worth watching. And I, I, think, I think that can kind of only be from conspiracy. They're worried if they cover the real story, it will upset people who their jobs rely upon. You know, it's too risky. It's too risky because the people it would upset are too powerful. Upset powerless people doesn't really matter. Like I imagine that if you were one of those witnesses, you know, who's just gone through a very difficult trial, and you then hear a very powerful man casting all these aspersions about you on, on Radio 4 today, then that would be fairly upsetting. But if you upset them, it doesn't really matter. 
if, if you upset someone who took regular flights in, in Jeffrey Epstein's plane or was a very close friend of Ghislaine Maxwell, then maybe you'll have someone who has your phone number, who is a WhatsApp contact, who will say, oh, do you not want to be careful here? Because I've got friends in powerful places. And that's not the kind of hard-hitting journalism they're willing to do. Those aren't the questions they will ask. And I mean, I agree with you, Ash. The reporting on this case has just been next-level disgraceful. It's disgusting. It's bad journalism. It's clearly motivated by some nefarious concerns. And crap, essentially. We've got a bit more on this story. We're going to talk about um, one other famous person, very powerful person, who is somewhat in the frame. While Ghislaine Maxwell was being convicted of five counts related to her sex trafficking, her friend Prince Andrew was busy trying to have Virginia Giuffre's legal case against him quashed. Giuffre accuses Prince Andrew of sexually assaulting her on three occasions when she was just 17. Andrew has denied all the charges she has made against him. This famous 2001 photo shows Andrew with his arm around Virginia Grafray. You can see convicted sex trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell lurking in the background. Things have not gone well so far for Prince Andrew in his defence, at least in terms of his public image. He hasn't done much to help himself on that front. For a start, remember this from 2019. On that particular day that, that, that um, uh, we now understand is the date, which is the 10th of March, uh, I was at home. Uh, I was with the children. I'd taken Beatrice to uh, a pizza express in Woking for a party at, a, I suppose, sort of four or five in the afternoon. Um, and then because the Duchess was away, we have a simple rule in the, in the, in the family that, 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 that when one's away, the other one's there. I was on terminal leave at the time um, from the, the Royal Navy, so therefore I was at home. Why would you remember that so specifically? Why would you remember a, a Pizza Express birthday and being at home? Because going to Pizza Express in Woking is an unusual thing for me to do. She was very specific about that night. Mm. She described dancing with you no. and you profusely sweating <laughs> and that she went on to have bath, there's a, there's possibly... A, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating um, because uh, I, I have a peculiar medical condition, which is that I don't sweat um, or I didn't sweat at the time. And that was... Oh, was she? Yes. I didn't sweat at the time because... I um, ha had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. And it's only because I have done a number of things in, in the recent past that I'm starting to be able to do that again. So I'm afraid to say that, 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 that there's a medical condition that... Both claims made in that interview were immediately mocked for good reason. Andrew could not be guilty because he was in a Pizza Express in Woking, and he couldn't have been guilty because he can't sweat. Ridiculous. I don't know who told him it was a good idea. Now, in a civil claim against Prince Andrew by Virginia Giuffray, it's been revealed that Andrew's lawyers have been unable to hand evidence of either the visit to Pizza Express or the medical condition that prevents him from sweating. So they've been unable to prevent that to Jeffrey's legal team. This led to an amazing headline in the Times. 
Prince Andrew cannot prove his inability to sweat after a request by Virginia Jeffrey's lawyers. Now, you'd have thought it's a medical condition. The royals, I don't think, are normally people who struggle to get an appointment with their GP. So if you did have a problem which meant that you couldn't sweat for a long period of time, I'm pretty sure someone would have written it down. I, I don't know how he didn't think of that before he brought it up on the Newsnight interview. In any case, Prince Andrew's lawyers hope the details of the events surrounding the allegations will not need to be settled in court. That's because they want the case thrown out because they claim a deal signed between Jeffrey Epstein and Jeffrey in 2009 gives Prince Andrew immunity. That legal settlement was reached in 2009 between Epstein and Dufresne. That was after she brought a suit against him for sexual assault and exploitation. And the details of the settlement have now been revealed. It has been unsealed. What we've learnt from that unsealing is that Dufresne was paid $500,000 to drop the case against Epstein. And the part of the deal relevant to Andrew is the following. So the settlement states that Roberts release acquit, satisfy, and forever discharge the said second parties and any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant, in brackets, other potential defendants, from all and all manner of action and actions of Virginia Roberts. Virginia Roberts was, of course, Virginia Dufresne's name in 2009. It's her her maiden name. Prince Andrew's lawyers are set to argue in court that the settle indemnifies him from Jeffrey's legal action as he is included under the settlement's category of other potential defendants. That's even though Andrew is not named in the document. And they will argue that Jeffrey's case should be dismissed since she signed away her rights to mount legal cases against those connected with Epstein. Interestingly, in that same 2019 interview, Andrew denied being particularly close to Epstein. So he said the following, It would be to some extent a stretch to say that, as it were, we were close friends. I mean, we were friends because of other people, and I had a lot of opportunity to go to the United States, but I didn't have much time with him. I suppose I saw him once or twice a year, perhaps maybe maximum of three times a year. And quite often, if I was in the United States and doing things, and if he wasn't there, he would say, well, why don't you come and use my houses? And so I said, that's very kind. Thank you very much indeed. Obviously, we're no legal experts, but it seems a bit odd to claim a limited connection to Epstein one minute, and then to argue the following, that a settlement indemnifying those connected to him should apply to you. Also worth noting from that quote I read you there, Andrew's argument was always, I was not close friends with Jeffrey Epstein, I was close friends with Ghislaine Maxwell, who was friends with Epstein. We hear less of that now, don't we? Ash, regardless of the legal case here, what does this mean for Andrew's already trashed reputation? People look at Prince Andrew and they see a man who, because of his combination of wealth and privilege, the fact that he's been told his entire life that he is superior to everybody else that he shares a country with just by virtue of his bloodline, that all of these things have turned him into an absolute idiot. Because nobody with even a molecule of critical faculties would have waltzed into that Newsnight interview confident, even if it was the absolute gospel truth, that Pizza Express and an inability to sweat would make a persuasive case in the court of public opinion when the subject matter is exploitation of a trafficked minor. 
all right? Even if you were completely innocent, if you were a smart person, not even a smart person, if you were just a basic, normal, regular, regular person, you would go, that's not something that I'm going to do. So it's not surprising to me that these claims, which were absolutely farcical at the time that they were broadcast, are now being unpicked one by one from the idea that you could take your child to a birthday party in a Pizza Express in Woking and there be no witnesses who can testify to that fact. So not the person whose birthday party it was. It was supposed to be a children's birthday party, so not their parents. No one else who attended. None of the staff there. Nobody who saw you by chance. I mean, I know that Prince Andrew isn't one of the most famous royals, but pretty much everyone can remember, at least one person would remember that they saw an actual living, breathing member of the royal family on that date at that time. His diary would contain that perhaps as part of his list of engagements. There would be a record somewhere either lodged in somebody's memory or on some scrap of paper, in my opinion. I find it incredibly hard to comprehend that the son of the queen could go to a pizza express and there'd be no witnesses to testify to that fact. As for the matter of sweating, Michael, I agree with you. Again, talking about it as a medical condition and then talking about having taken certain steps in the recent past to then recover your lost ability to sweat, I would imagine that that would involve somewhere along the line a medical professional who would make notes of it as part of your medical records. Unless... Prince Andrew is somebody who regularly self-diagnoses and self-prescribes uh, treatment for quite complex phenomena like overdose of adrenaline-induced loss of the capacity to perspire. Um, so, yeah, it's completely insulting to our intelligence. Even within that Newsnight interview, there were uh, several contradictions, one being, well, I wasn't close to Jeffrey Epstein, but I did have to go stay around his house for three days to break off our friendship. This was after he was convicted for some of his offenses. Of course, he was let off very leniently at that time. So even within that one interview, there was a litany of contradictions which should be straightened out in a court of law. So I do think it's fairly revealing that rather than saying, you know what, I am so confident of my innocence that I will, you know, put myself forward before any due process and I will establish my innocence beyond any shadow of a doubt. Instead, his lawyers are trying to get him off on what is essentially a technicality. Now, of course, there is an innocent before proven guilty principle in our legal system that's very important and I'm glad that it's there. But in the court of public opinion, it doesn't necessarily in people's minds debunk certain notions, certain suspicions. I'm wording this carefully because I don't want to get sued by the royal family, Michael. I don't have that kind of money. People were, when this agreement was first unsealed, there had been some speculation that we would find a bit more details about the allegations made against Andrew. It turns out the main thing we've sort of discovered is, is, is how much money was involved. And I was kind of shocked. Half a million dollars. This guy was a millionaire, like one of the richest people in America. And half a million dollars got him agreement that not only meant that this woman could never take him to court again, but anyone ever associated with this guy could never take her to court again. I think the idea that you can make a, an agreement where you won't take anyone associated with the person to court is pretty strange. I mean, it only applies to civil cases, right? So I, I assume this wouldn't carry over to, to a, a prosecution in criminal court, but it still struck me as pretty odd. 
Well, it is pretty odd. But again, we know that Jeffrey Epstein had some pretty good lawyers because when you look at his lenient treatment for those first set of charges, he was able to be treated like no other child sex trafficker in the history of the world would be treated. So we know that he's got a pretty decent set of lawyers. We know that he was very adept at manipulating law enforcement, the criminal justice system, the legal system as a whole in his interest simply because he had an awful lot of wealth. And I think one of the things to bear in mind is that, yeah, half a million dollars is not a lot of money compared to what Jeffrey Epstein uh, himself had or indeed potentially had access to. We don't know where uh, a lot of those hidden assets um, of uh, Glenn Maxwell's father ended up. But if you're Virginia Roberts and you're somebody who has been immensely traumatized by their childhood experiences if you're somebody who doesn't have access to a lot of money or certainly nowhere near the amount of money that jeffrey epstein is in command of you even embarking on this civil suit is a huge financial risk absolutely huge and i think that's one of the things that's hard to imagine which is if she'd lost she might have been liable to cover all of Jeffrey Epstein's legal costs in addition to her own. She might have been seeing the cost of her own legal counsel stacking up. And that is incredibly intimidating because there's one way of looking at things, which is, you know, somebody's got nothing to lose. But actually, it is very possible to have less than nothing. It is possible to be completely crushed under the weight of debts and financial obligations. And I can understand being completely sincere and honest about your account that happened to you but also still taking a settlement which to our eyes looks like not very much money but to her eyes at the time seeming like a lot of money and feeling intimidated by the risks involved by continuing the suit i can understand that so that's a super important point obviously you know civil court in general massively favors wealthy people because you can spend a lot of money on on counsel you can get the other person you can intimidate the other person by saying they'll they'll have to pay your legal costs and you don't really care if you lose and you have to pay their legal costs generally a tool of the rich we are going to wrap up there we'll be back on wednesday at 7 p.m for now you've been watching tisky sour on navara media good night this broadcast is brought to you by navara media go to navaramedia.com support